Good morning. Good to see all of you. The Lord is glad you're here. I am glad you're here. If you would, turn in your Bibles to John chapter 14. We are concluding our series, Six Questions to Ask a Skeptic, this morning with the last question, which we will address here momentarily. John chapter 14. I want us to read verses 1 through 6 as we begin. Hear now the word of the true and living God. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am you may be also, and you know the way to where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Let us pray. Father God, we would see Jesus this morning. And so help us to clear away all of the confused clutter that gets in the way of a clear picture of Jesus. Help us not only to see Him, but then also to show Him to others in a clear way as well. We pray this through Christ our Lord. Amen. The premise of this sermon series is that we desire to engage the culture in which we live with the truth about Jesus. And we ask these questions to our skeptical friends not to be mean, not to be smart-alecky, or to engage in gotcha-type tactics. We want to stimulate thought. We want to stimulate non-manipulative dialogue with our friends, our neighbors, co-workers, family members. We have seen that somewhere in the neighborhood of 20% of the U.S. population now identifies as a non-religious person. This has been the definition of skeptic as we've gone along. And we've talked about uh, five other questions. Why is there something rather than nothing? And we believe that it's because we are the creation of a good creator. That's one thing that I don't know that I've stressed enough as we've gone through this. When you are in conversation with this person, we need to recognize that they are created in the image of God just as we are. This is a fellow image bearer. The problem is, and, and by the way, the... the their desire to be coherent and to offer a worldview that makes sense betrays the fact that they are created in the image of God and that they want truth. The problem is sin gets in the way. Sin mars that divine image. It's not erased. It is effaced, though. And so the, the challenge for us is to help our unbelieving friends to recognize how they are actually suppressing the truth in unrighteousness and 
uh, for them to, to recognize that there is a better way, a better worldview, and, and that is a worldview that takes into account the triune God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And according to that worldview, why is there something rather than nothing? It's because God created everything. And we are the product of that good creation. You know, one of the things that we talked about when we addressed that question also is, what are we teaching our children? If we are teaching our children that they are uh, bags of mostly water, that they are merely uh, flesh-based machines, uh, that they are merely the product of millions, billions of years of random, purposeless accidents, we should, we should not be surprised at the results of that uh, when it comes to the increase in uh, mental disturbances among children uh, and young adults as well. We have a better answer. That there is a God who, in love, created everything, that we are not merely an accident, but we are, we are created on purpose and for a purpose, and that is the divine purpose. Is there an ultimate transcendent meaning to life was the second question. We said, yes, of course there is. Without God, we're left with meaninglessness and a crisis of meaning. Can we be good without God? Well, according to our worldview, we can because we can define what good is. Without God, it's just mere relativism. And uh, that runs into all kinds of chaos. Why are children intuitive theists? That is, why are they built to believe in God? The atheist and the skeptic has no good answer to that. We do. We're, we're, we're made in the divine image. And so as, as creatures of the creator, we owe him certain things, and therefore it's built into us to give him the things that he owes, though we don't because, again, sin gets in the way. What is the meaning of suffering? We addressed that last week. Massive subject, and we only touched the hem of the garment on. But uh, what is the meaning of suffering? Well, we believe that God not only can redeem that suffering, but he's actually in the midst of that suffering. Without God in the world, it's just meaningless suffering. Uh, it's gratuitous suffering is another phrase that is often used in the literature. And so we come to the last question. And, and let me preface it with a quote by A.W. Tozer. He begins his uh, book, The Pursuit of the Holy, with this line, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. And saying is how we believe that Christ is God. What comes into our mind when we think about Christ is related to this question or the, the statement. That is the most important thing about us. And just about everyone who's ever heard of Jesus has an opinion about Jesus. What we think about when it comes to Jesus, again, that is the most important thing about us. What we think about Jesus determines how we live our lives, how we respond to pain and suffering. It impacts destiny as well, where we're going when all of this life is over. And so that's the question. That's the final question that we want to ask our skeptical friends. What do you think about Jesus? And I say final, it's just the final in, in the series that we've been covering. I don't want to give the impression that you ought to start with number one and work your way through here. It's going to be dependent upon the, the way the conversation goes, which question you address to your friend, your neighbor, your skeptical relative. Uh, you have to determine how the conversation's going. 
and it may be that you get to lead off with this question. Well and good, all right? I'm not saying that there's a, a pecking order and you've got to work your way through this. I think that's what we get wrong a lot of the times when it comes to evangelism, that evangelism and outreach is scripted. And that, that when somebody asks a question that's off script, hey, that's a great question. I'm going to write it down and I'll get back to you next time. Let me get back to what I'm talking about, though. That's not non-manipulative dialogue. You're manipulating the conversation to go in the way that you want it to go rather than actually meeting the person where they are. And so we need to be cognizant of this, that a lot of the times there isn't a script per se, uh, but rather uh, we need to be willing to allow the conversation to go where it goes and to be dependent upon the fact that Christ himself promises us that when we go and when we make disciples and, and, and we're teaching them everything that Jesus has commanded them, that he promises will be with you always. It is in the context of it's in the context of risk that Christ promises, I will be with you then. We need to be dependent upon the resources of the Holy Spirit, confident that the Spirit's going to show up in the midst of these conversations. And that He is truly the helper. Uh, and well that's a story for another time. But I, let's focus here. Jesus made some very serious claims during his life. It has bearing upon every single person who's ever lived. We've already seen uh, some of these here in John chapter 14. You can go through the Gospel of John and you see these claims. I am the bread of life. I am the gate. I am the door. I am the way, the truth, and the life. Even that statement, I am, that's a claim to deity. He is claiming to be God. I and the Father, we are one, he says in John chapter 10 and verse 30. These, again, are very serious claims. They need to be considered with very sober thought. So what do you think about Jesus? And there are four possible conclusions that one can draw when it comes to these claims. Three of them are mistaken. One is the truth. <clears throat> the three that are mistaken are often what you'll run into when you engage in conversation with your skeptical friends. The first is our skeptical friends may say that he was a myth, that he never lived, that he, he did not exist, he never existed. He is second cousin to Harvey the Rabbit, right? He was made up by the church. There was no man named Jesus. There was no Jesus of history. And the claims that are found in the pages of the New Testament, they are attributed to Jesus, but they were just, they were made up by the early church. The early church fabricated them. Uh, out of thin air. And so there's no need to believe these claims any more than we should believe the claims of any other work of fiction. You know, you'd be better off just basing your ethic for life on the, on, on the great Gatsby or on the works of Shakespeare than you are on Scripture. Because again, Jesus, he never existed. This is again what our skeptical friends would say, that he was a myth. However, that is not at all the case. That is ahistorical. It actually ends up being fringe when it comes to true scholarship and history. The evidence is overwhelming. It is abundant that there was an actual factual man of history, Jesus of Nazareth. He really did exist. Source after source from antiquity could be brought to bear on this uh, in order to corroborate this fact. Both pagan sources and Jewish sources note both of those sources 
are not friendly to Christianity. Pliny the Younger, Lucian of Samosota, others attest that Jesus died on the cross, that his followers worshipped him as God. You also have Jewish sources, in fact, one of the main ones, Josephus, a Jewish historian for the Roman Empire, as well as the Talmud. These are rabbinic writings. Again, Jewish sources, not friendly to Christianity. They confirm that there was a man uh, named Jesus who claimed to be the Christ and who died on the cross and was resurrected. Now, of course, they didn't believe this, and yet they still recorded it as history. Again, it is actual history that there was a man named Jesus. So this business that he was merely a myth does not have a leg to stand on, and it ought to be dismissed out of hand. And so that's one mistaken idea about Jesus that that will come up from time to time, that he he never existed, he was a myth. But then there are also uh, two others that are related to this, and since there was this man named Jesus who lived 2,000 years ago, Now we're confronted with the reality of this man. What do we do with that? And there are two possibilities here. And one is that these claims of Jesus are false or that these claims of Jesus are true. If they are false, there are two possible alternatives here. And the first is that Jesus knew the things that he was saying were lies and he said them anyway and propagated them anyway. Or he didn't know that they weren't true. He, he, he thought they were, but they were actually false. And this is essentially, we can lean into the work here of C.S. Lewis, who posited the liar-lunatic-lord uh, triad. Uh, I've adapted it just a little bit. Uh, if he lied about it, that would make him a monster, a moral monster, if Jesus knew he he knew that this was these claims were not true and he made a deliberate misrepresentation of himself as god that would be he would be a monstrous liar furthermore he would have been a hypocrite since he called people to be honest and sincere when he himself was not in addition he's demonic he told people to trust in him for eternal salvation though he himself could not give that again if these claims are false. He's grotesquely evil because millions, even billions, have actually believed in him and followed him. And Jesus would have been the most foolish man of all because he died knowing he was a liar. If Jesus knew the things he was saying were lies and he preached them anyway, he would be a monster, a moral monster. However, the good news is, upon further reflection, it doesn't make sense that Jesus would have lied. And it's because he would not have lived like he did, which was he was morally perfect. He would not have maintained that character from start to finish if he was a deceiver, if he was uh, uh, selfish, if he was himself depraved at his core. And that just defies common sense and logic. In fact, Josh McDowell puts it this way. He says, someone who lived like Jesus lived, taught like Jesus taught, and died like Jesus died could not have been a liar. That doesn't make sense. That is simply a logical error. No, he, he didn't lie about this. But again, dealing with those two possibilities, we've dismissed that he could have been a monster, a liar, 
you're still left with the other possibility. Maybe he was crazy. He, he didn't know that they were false, that he was a madman. Could he have thought that he was God but been mistaken? I mean, come on, there's a lot of sincere people who are sincerely wrong a lot of the time, right? There have been other guys who've claimed uh, some aspect of divinity, but here's the thing. To claim to be God is the most delusional claim that a person could have made in the culture in which Jesus made those claims. Remember, he's a Jewish man sent to the Jewish people. The Jewish people are heavily monotheistic. And so to come into that culture and to make those claims, I mean, it eventually gets him killed because of it. Could he have been crazy? Could he have been a madman? The answer is, well, no, this would have been the most delusional thing of all. Furthermore, you read the life of Christ, he, he doesn't sound crazy. In fact, he sounds as, as clear and as lucid as anybody. The, the life he lives and the things that he taught are as clear as a blue sky on a cloudless day. Crazy people don't talk this way, in other words. So no, he's not a monster, he's not a madman. He's certainly not a myth. These three potential answers to the claims of Christ can be worked through and dismissed. And so what are we left with? We're left with the, the right idea about Christ, and that is he is exactly who he claimed to be. That he is not a legend invented by the church. He's not a liar. He's not a lunatic. He is Lord. He's not a myth, a monster, or a madman. He's the master. He is exactly who he claimed to be. Someone has said that if Jesus was not God, he deserves an Oscar for his performance. And so we proclaim with Peter, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Matthew 16, verse 18. We marvel with Martha. Yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who has come into the world. John 11, verse 27. And with Thomas, we say, my Lord and my God, John 20 and verse 28. The evidence is clear, and it points to Jesus being both Lord and Christ, just as Peter preaches in Acts chapter 2 and verse 36. One writer put it this way, not one recognized religious leader, not Moses, Paul, Buddha, Muhammad, Confucius, or the rest, has ever claimed to be God. That is, with the exception of Jesus. Christ is the only religious leader who ever claimed to be deity and the only individual ever who has convinced a great portion of the world that he is God. And he is. God, the Son, to the glory of God the Father. This is the right idea. That Jesus, he told the truth. These claims are true claims. And they confront every single here, confronted with the lordship of Christ, we're confronted with two possibilities. But these two alternatives, they're not about Jesus. They're about us. And they're about our response to Jesus. You see, what do you think about Jesus inevitably leads to the question of what will you do with Jesus? Now that you've been confronted with the truth, my friend, now that you've been confronted with the fact that Jesus is Lord, and He's Lord of all, 
What will you do with him? And again, here, there's two possibilities. Number one, you can reject him. And people do. Even confronted with, with the full deity and lordship of Christ, people will walk away from him. It happened in his day. Just a few chapters earlier in John's gospel, Jesus lays it out very clearly, unambiguously. He lays out who he is. I am the bread of life. You have to eat my flesh and drink my blood. and That is, you have to have true fellowship with me if you would have life. And when people heard this, it was a hard saying. And they began to walk away from him. They, be, they rejected him. Now, he'd already called them on the carpet for what they were. Earlier in the chapter, he said, you're just here for the food. You don't really want to follow me. You just want your bellies filled. And so they walk away from him. I may have shared this story before. When we were working in uh, Kansas, I was the intern for the congregation there, and he uh, encountered a, a young man who uh, was interested in studying, and I studied with him a couple few times. And in the last study, I laid it out just as clear as I could from Scripture, everything that is said about Jesus, as well as everything that he desires for us to do if we would be obedient to him, what it means to be a follower, laid it all out on the line, and just let it sit with him for a moment. And he sat there across the table from me, and he thought about it, and he looked up at me and he said, oh, that's a nice story. Thank you for sharing it with me. And that was the end of the study. I don't know what happened to him after that. Our studies discontinued after that. I'd like to hope that the seed that I planted was eventually watered by someone else and eventually the Lord gave the increase. I don't know. But I do know this. Success in outreach and evangelism is not dependent upon whether or not we have 100 million converts. Success in outreach and evangelism is rooted squarely in our faithfulness to proclaiming the gospel message to others. What they do with it is dependent upon them. We can only be faithful to what God has called us to do and called us to be. Look at the prophets. How many, how many people are in Jeremiah's church? The prophet Jeremiah. No one, he's told no one's going to listen. Same with Isaiah. Ezekiel is specifically told the people are going to come and they're going to listen to you, but then they're going to they're going to say that he sounds like someone who sings a song. They're not going to listen either. When Jesus dies, he does not die with rose petals being showered upon him. He dies with cold steel in his hands and not a single follower around. By all earthly measures, and that's what we do, right? Nickels and noses, right? Don't believe me, look at the back of the bulletin. We want to know the numbers, don't we? By all earthly measures, Jesus' ministry was a dismal failure. We don't go by earthly measures, do we? This is my beloved Son. With Him I am well pleased. Jesus accomplished fully the will of God in His life. And that is what we're called to do as well. Be faithful to the message, to present it as clearly as we can, and then allow the Word to do what it will do 
And we are told that the word of the Lord will not return to him void. Rejection. People do reject Jesus. They continue to hold to their faulty belief about Jesus. Even when you present them with the, with the truth, the, the, the true history, they still persist in believing that, no, he, he really didn't exist, or I don't know, I don't... Uh, he, sure, he's a great moral teacher, but that's all. But there are many who reject him because of the moral implications that will be placed upon their life. They see clearly, yes, okay, fine, he, he is God the Son, he is Lord, but I don't want to change my life. I, I, I can't follow him. The cost is too high. Jesus himself talks about counting the cost when it comes to discipleship. And some see the price tag as too high, and they will not change. Indeed, to confess Christ as Lord, that's going to turn your whole world upside down. And many people simply don't want that. And they walk away because of that. But the confession, the confession Christ is Lord, it really does change everything. To, to bow the knee to King Jesus, that is life-changing. And so some people, they do reject Him, but, praise God, there are those who do receive Him. And this is, this is the other possibility here that, that people can make, that people can choose. And this is talked about earlier in John's Gospel, John chapter 1, verses 12 and 13. We should read verse 11 as well. Well, verse 10 also, he was in the world and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. That's what we're talking about. He came to his own, his own people did not receive him. That's rejection. That's what we talked about. Ah, but to all who did receive him, here's the other part of this. This is, this is, this is the response that all of heaven rejoices over when a sinner repents because they've received the Lord. To all who did receive him, who believed in his name. That is faith. Faith, belief in Christ, in his name. His name, that, that idea of the name captures the whole personality, the whole person. And again, that's what we're talking about. You, you can't just pick and choose what you're going to take when it comes to Jesus. Well, I like his, his good moral teachings, but I don't know about this Son of God stuff. No, you've got to take the whole name. You've got to take the whole person. That he is indeed God the Son, Lord of all. And indeed, the one sacrifice for sin. Who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And that being born of God, you connect this with chapter 3, verses 3 and 5. Jesus himself says, truly, I, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, that is born from above, born from heaven, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. We receive Christ. We believe in his name. And we are birthed from above and become, having been born of God, we are his children now. This is receiving Christ. And again, only two possibilities when confronted with Jesus. Rejection or reception. There is no middle ground. No middle ground. Those who reject him, they, they do their best to dismiss him. 
as a myth, as a monster, as a madman. But He is Lord. And how we respond to His invitation to come to Him, that's important. Even the most important thing about us. Lee Strobel, in his book, The Case for Christ, writes this. He says, if Jesus is the Son of God, His teachings are more than just good ideas from a wise teacher. They are divine insights on which I can confidently build my life. Indeed, there is no greater life to be lived than a life lived with Christ. Or as Paul says, Christ in me, the hope of glory. You see, receiving Christ not only impacts the here and the now, but it has consequences for the there and the then. And for us who do receive Him and who are children of God, we look forward to glory. But to reject Him, to reject Him in the here and the now also has consequences for the there and the then. This is a very serious and a very sobering thing when people reject Christ, because all they face, the wrath of God abides on them for their sins, and all that remains is punishment for their sins when this life is over. An eternity away from God and away from Christ. Let me close with a quote. I hope I don't butcher it from C.S. Lewis. I cited him earlier. I've leaned into his liar, lunatic, Lord, uh, triad. C.S. Lewis said that there are two kinds of people in the world. There are those who, in the here and the now, say to God, Thy will be done. And there are those who, at the end of time, God looks to them and says, Thy will be done. Which are you? Let us pray. Father God, we as your children are those who truly say from our heart of hearts, your will be done. Because that's what we want in our lives, is your will and only your will to be done in our lives. Father, we pray for the lost in our community, the community, the lost around us. We pray, Father, that you would take our meager efforts in sharing the gospel and multiply them greatly for your kingdom. And we pray, Father, that our lost friends, neighbors, co-workers, family members, they, like us, would say to you, your will be done. This we pray through Christ our Lord. Amen.